being on retreat for a day, sitting in the woods under the big trees. You probably have noticed, at least in moments today, that things can come into view in a way that are less likely to come into view when we're out being, being pushed around by our lives, our jobs, our relationships. And in that clarity, that relative clarity, we see something that probably we've seen a lot in our lives, but every once in a long while, we see it in a a deeper way. And we use in the tradition, we use the word dukkha, or the unsatisfactoriness of existence. But it also refers to the ordinary pain that we experience as human beings. So tonight I'd like to talk about the Four Noble Truths or suffering and the end of suffering. Realizing dukkha, waking up to dukkha as an empowering joy instead of dismal work. And I know this first day of retreat, it can seem a little bit um, overwhelming, at least in moments, the sleepiness or the wildness of our thinking mind, the strength of the emotions, just a general uncomfortableness that in a way is just the karmic fruit of living the lives we've been living. And then we have this more open space. And in a way, we just feel the very natural, very appropriate result of having been living the way we've been living. It's not a mistake. So what is it about dukkha that makes it an empowering joy? This is part of what I'd like to talk about tonight. So we don't see this work just as uh, something we have to do, like bitter medicine. Because if we don't you know, take the bitter medicine, it just gets worse. So we'll reflect on dukkha, the truth of unsatisfactoriness, the truth of pain, the truth that we can't hold on to things, even the nice things in life because they keep changing. I have to, you know, I have to grow up. I have to accept this. But see, that's, that doesn't sound like an empowering joy. That sounds like, well, it gets even worse if we don't accept it or don't reflect on it. I remember a couple times in my life where this just naturally came into view. One, I was pretty young, maybe 17 or so. And uh, I was really into running back then, running on the track and cross-country teams. And uh, I got an injury, not a bad one, but it meant I wasn't training for maybe just 10 days. It wasn't even that long. And But it was just the conditions were just right. And uh, it was like right at the peak of my high school years where I was very idealistic and really into, I mean, unconsciously, not even consciously into achievement, but just unconsciously being swept away by, you know, running faster, getting good grades, being popular, all the kind of, well, not always normal, but 
things you might expect of a 17-year-old. And then I got this injury and that the bubble was popped just enough or there was enough of a punctuation to that, just sort of doing the next thing. And I became reflective. And initially it was just reflective about running, which when you think about it, it's kind of silly, you know, running around a track <laughs> every day, getting up. We'd, we would train in the morning, early in the morning, and then we'd train in the afternoon. And the weekends, you know, there'd be races. And when you run cross country in the fall and winter track in the winter and spring track in the spring, and then training in the summer, it's like you keep running, right? To run another race. And what does that lead like? And then there's always another race. And so, and even if you do well and, and win some and are, get a better time than you got before, you know, it feels good. And then you got to do it again. <coughs> and so in that just normal high school mind, it just occurred to me, like, what am I doing? Where does this go? You know, because I was thinking, you know, the initial thought is my training is being interrupted. How am I going to, you know, be this good, run this fast if I can't train? And so I just, I looked at that and I said, well, why do I want that? And what does that lead to? What is the satisfaction that that leads to? Right? And then, you know, I have a kind of a curious mind and I thought, well, now what about academics? You know, so, okay, I, I do really well. I get good grades. I get into good college. I get a good job. You know, I sort of just started doing the math. So where does that go? Where's the end of that? That's the question. Same with the, the running, you know. Where's the, where do I get to that place where there's satisfaction? Ah, done, really done. I didn't see it, you know, in athletics. I didn't see it in academics. I didn't see it anywhere. I just, I was like surprisingly reflective for a 17-year-old. What is the point? I didn't figure out anything, (laughs) as you might imagine, except I realized after that, you know, in hindsight especially, but even at the time, I kind of lost my, killer instinct. Like it wasn't so easy for me to work hard anymore just for the idea of getting ahead. And I kind of cruised and uh, until really I got interested in the Dharma. Then I sort of found that energy again, but that energy, that achievement, striving energy doesn't work in Dharma either. (laughs) But we usually learn the hard way by over-efforting and getting enchanted with the stories we read about awakening, enlightenment, you know, peace. Not that those beautiful qualities of mind, states of mind don't exist, but they don't arise because somebody wants them to arise. So if you haven't realized that, listen carefully. (laughs) Whatever real spiritual goodies there are, the supporting causes for those insights, the experience of freedom, the experience of calm and peace, the supporting causes have a lot more to do with a letting go than they do with striving 
or somebody wanting to achieve something. And there were other points in my life where this um, appreciation and understanding of dukkha just came into view. And initially it might have felt somewhat disconcerting, but there was something joyful about stripping away some idealism. It's like, um, I didn't know what to do with my life, like with that initial sort of maturing in 11th grade, but I, I knew enough not to be tight about things that didn't seem to me led anywhere. I mean, I didn't give up on, you know, getting good grades or running. But I didn't run and I didn't study as if it was going to make me happy. It took me a long time. I mean, it was really long when you consider. But before I began to realize that I have to do these things because of the inherent satisfaction or joy in the doing of them. That's a hard lesson to learn, that we do things. If we can't find the joy, if we think that a joy is later, that's that setup, you know, that promise that's never kept. You know, if only I behave, if only I sit perfectly still, if only I concentrate my mind then, as opposed to, like the Buddha describes, that the benefit from the practice is seen is experienced in the beginning in the middle, in the end. The wholesomeness of the path of practice has the flavor of liberation in it. That's why we can't use greed in the practice, right? We have to use a letting go, a relinquishing, a putting down, a simplicity, because that, even in the initial uh, moments, it feels right. There's something good about being simple, about allowing the process of practice to be natural instead of forced. I was on a retreat with Saida. Utejaniya, this wonderful Burmese teacher that has been coming to the West over the last maybe now 10 years or so. Kamala is uh, sponsoring a retreat for him uh, at her place in Maui, the Vipassana Metta Foundation land. And um, so he's somebody we've both studied with. And uh, last time I, I was on retreat with him, he asked us this question, Is the Buddhist teachings, are the Buddhist teachings optimistic or pessimistic? Maybe somebody have heard him say this. A lot of his discussions with small groups are on Dharma Seed. You can listen to his question and answers. So he asked about 18 of us that were in the room with him this question, and he waited. He wanted people to commit. You know, either you think it's optimistic what the Buddha is teaching, or you think it's pessimistic but you have to take a stand. You know, we all kind of squirming. We all sense it was a setup. <laughs> but, you know, enough people sort of 
you know, made a choice. And, uh, and then he, you know, once he felt he could catch them, he said, neither. The Buddhist teachings are realistic. And uh, even though I felt a little bit set up, I thought, oh, that's, that's good. That makes a lot of sense. That the Buddha is teaching something that's very realistic and there's some kind of release, even in the, even the acknowledging of that and the recognition that these teachings, and especially the teachings about dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature of our experiencing, our existence, when somebody like the Buddha says that, that there is the truth of unsatisfactoriness, there is this truth that our experiences don't deliver lasting happiness. Because the joy is that all of a sudden, the frame the mind is using to look at life lines up with our experience, with the data we've been collecting our whole life. Because if an experience truly satisfied us, we'd be satisfied. (laughs) Anybody there? So we're still looking for, you know, in each of us in our own way, we're still looking for satisfaction, even, and appropriately so, I think, coming to a Buddhist retreat is our way of looking for satisfaction. And this is, this is a good thing to do with that desire for satisfaction, for solid ground, for safety, right? Because, you know, we've tried it, we tried finding it in relationships. We've tried finding it in uh, health and strength and beauty of the body. We've tried finding it in competence and knowledge and skill. Right? We've tried all kinds of ways to get that permanent, perfect <clears throat> satisfaction. But I don't know anybody who's found it in those ways. So that's why we're interested in coming to a place that, you know, it's almost like it's in neon lights at most Buddhist retreats. You know, at least in this tradition, we, you know, hopefully the teachers all have a sense of this as uh, something we're so grateful to, over the years of practice, better and better understand there is this truth of dukkha. Conditioned experience is unsatisfactory. And like we're not ashamed, we're not embarrassed. It's like instead of feeling so betrayed or disappointed, maybe initially, but we're over that. And now it, it's helped to correct how we relate to our life, what we're going to do with this life. So instead of thinking of this life as I mean, often we judge ourselves. We can even hate ourselves, feel really bad or stupid because we think that happiness, satisfaction is out there to be grasped, that other people have found it and have grasped it and have it. But why not me? Why haven't I gotten that lasting, perfect happiness that can't be disturbed? What's wrong with me? 
there must be something wrong with me. I'm not trying hard enough. I must be lazy or somebody's out to get me. You know, bad luck, bad fate. So when we turn this corner and we realize, I don't think sense experience, I don't think existence can provide the happiness I always thought it was supposed to provide. I mean, isn't it true that, you know, casually speaking, we sort of, it's sort of funny when we say it out loud, but we expect the world, the world of experience, we expect that it's here to make us happy. But when we just step back and look at the assumptions, like, why would the world be here to make us happy? You know, the world, the conditioned world, nature, these sort of innumerable forces that, you know, make things the way that they are, they're not really here for good or evil purposes. It's just nature. Causes and conditions unfolding. So this is another aspect of dukkha, understanding what this is, this conditioned world is. It's here. This heart, this mind is sensitive to it, right? We feel, we see, we're touched. Constantly, the heart, the sensitive heart is impinged upon by one thought, one sense, experience after another, right? And uh, it's a real relief when we realize, when we start to turn this corner, oh, this retreat that you have made real efforts to get to, the sense experience of being on retreat, as nice as the food is, as beautiful as the trees are, I know some of the rooms are a little crowded, but it's still, you know, it's relatively comfortable, clean. But it's not here to satisfy us. It's here to make us feel safe and comfortable enough so we can see more and more clearly that the world is just the world. It's just these innumerable causes and conditions, constantly in motion, constantly changing. We don't know how it's all going to play out, let alone in the big picture, you know, 10, 20 years down, but even day to day, we don't know. We always hear stories about sudden things, sudden changes, but somehow it doesn't occur to us that (laughs) that could be us, you know, these changes, whatever it might be. So do you feel any joy in just like sobering up that kind of joy? Like, oh, because now it's like our relationship to knee pain and to having a good night's sleep or eating food that works well with how our belly works. And it's like we, we're not expecting happiness to arise 
out of our relationship to the world. I mean, some moments will be relatively pleasant and some of our moments will be relatively unpleasant. But to the degree we can open and maybe intuit that this is, there's some truth here, that the world isn't here to make us happy, you see how it liberates the mind to look for happiness somewhere else. I forget, it might have been Sharon Salzberg, but one of our teachers in this tradition, Insight Meditation, a Vipassana teacher, said something like, um, the world, this world of ours, isn't really suitable for grasping, but it works quite well for letting go. You know, it's like, And now that's the kind of happiness we haven't maybe taken a close look at, the happiness of letting go, the happiness of non-attachment. There's a teaching the Buddha gave that's interesting. Um, Sometimes it's translated as transcendent dependent origination. So he's ha- he has a couple teachings. The dependent, the normal dependent origination teaching is how can there be this appearance of me who's suffering, you know, an ordinary person who is experiencing stress when it's just nature. So he mapped it out about how there are these cycles of activities, these dependently or conditioned activities that give the appearance of a me who's having a hard time in life, a me who wants things to be different. Like how that can be when there's no center, it's just natural activity. And then he also mapped out, this is the one I wanted to talk about, this transcendent origination or transcendent dependent origination. How is it that a being can become liberated, become freed when there isn't a permanent individual? How can there be an appearance of somebody becoming free? It's great. The Buddha left no stone unturned in terms of like how this, what we call my life, what's happening to me, how this is just nature, just nature happening, following sort of the law, the lawfulness of all these causes and conditions. And so the interesting thing as he mapped that out, he said, well, the first thing is dukkha, right? So in in the sort of natural unfolding of awakening, there is the experience of dukkha. And instead of the unsatisfactoriness or the difficulty, the torment of life, instead of that leading to, you know, beating our breast and complaining and blaming and denying and hitting back and, you know, some of the things we do, hitting ourselves, feeling we're no good, instead of that reaction, sometimes the experience of dukkha leads to a sincere search. Does anybody out there know anything about this experience of unsatisfactoriness, right? And we, we listen. We're willing to go somewhere like Cloud Mountain and listen with some humility. Not sort of expecting to be saved, but a sense that, well, maybe I don't, maybe my, this mind hasn't seen clearly what's going on. Maybe 
I need some new input. Sometimes, especially in the later Buddhist traditions, they call this pointing out instructions. (coughs) Sort of inserting, like a little computer virus, inserting uh, the possibility of another view in the mind. So, then in this chain, this natural unfolding from there being a suffering being to there being liberation, the first step is suffering, but suffering that leads to interest. Is there anybody who knows anything about this? And then that being, let's say, listens and hears some teachings, let's say, from the Buddha. And then all of a sudden, they have some confidence. Oh, Oh, that makes sense. Enough confidence to sort of take a step. Take one step. Well, let me check out whether what this person has said corresponds to my experience. Right? So the Buddha says there is unsatisfactoriness and it should be understood. Right? It has been understood. These are the first three insights in this map of practice we call the Four Noble Truths, one of the most central maps used in all the different Buddhist traditions. So the first step are these three insights. There is dukkha, there is unsatisfactoriness in life, it should be understood, it's relevant, it has been understood. And when someone does that, because the, the mind begins to intuit that there's a way out. There's some joy that arises. And then the joy matures into rapture, sort of a more intense joy. Rapture matures into tranquility. You know, when we're feeling a lot of rapture, well, we don't feel the need to do anything because we have the happiness, you know, the sort of very clear experience of pleasantness that we wanted, so then things settle down. We feel tranquil. Tranquil leads to a deeper kind of happiness, sukha, sort of an ease of the heart. That ease supports a deepening stability, clarity, concentration of the mind. Concentration leads to seeing things as they are, seeing it's that everything is just nature, it's changing, it's not, uh, not helpful to grasp, it doesn't add anything to grasp, just causes suffering, that it's impersonal, there's no center to this unfolding. Seeing things as they are like that leads to a letting go, a disenchantment, and then that leads to liberation. So that's sort of nice. You know, this thing we have in, in good supply, dukkha. So if we approach dukkha with humility, so instead of just complaining about the unsatisfactoriness, the difficulty, but really see it as a teacher, teaching us to be humble enough to listen and then act on what we hear to see if it bring some clarity, bring some relief. And to the degree we see that, oh, this makes sense, and intuit a way out, we get happy, right? I've never once, 
maybe sixth grade. Uh, I lived, I grew up in Minneapolis, and then we went to Chicago once a year to play basketball. I went to Catholic um, elementary school through eighth grade, and uh, we take this trip, take the train down from Minneapolis to Chicago, and uh, the and you stay with other kids um, in the Chicago teams, and. Uh, so we had a day to hang out, and they were going to take me to downtown Chicago, some boys that I was staying with. And, but they never paid the, on the L train, or whatever it's called, uh, elevated train, I guess it's called in Chicago. And uh, they kind of climbed a tree and jumped up. But I, you know, being a straight kid, I paid. And then as soon as I got to the platform, the train came, and I got on. And I, I assumed they had gotten on, too. It was just this big bustle of people. And after a couple of stops, I realized they were not on the train. <laughs> and, and the worst thing is, I didn't even know the name. I couldn't remember the name of the kid I was staying with. <laughs> so I don't remember the school. You know, it's like, so anyway, I got off. And, uh, and I was sort of floundering for a while, trying to figure out what I was going to do. And, uh, but, it, you know, eventually I just followed the track. And I, I slowly, you know, I... I was just really careful not to sort of do anything that I wasn't certain of. So I sort of, I mean, it was like hours wandering around Chicago. And they had called the police, I found out later. <laughs> but, but the point I'm making here is that there is some real joy. Like the more I went from that place of, oh, poor me, which I definitely hung out in for a while, to, you know, well... Let's see what I can do. I mean, the, the fortunate thing about the elevated train as opposed to the subway is you could sort of follow it. So I sort of followed it and, uh, you know, just sort of, and I tried one direction, didn't see anything that looked familiar. And then I'd go the other side of the tracks and walk that way when I think I got to the station. I mean, eventually uh, his parents found me. He ran out of the car, ran up to me looking really happy. And the first thing out of his mouth is, don't tell my parents. <laughs> but there's something about like getting a sense that we're getting closer. Like having, oh, this makes sense. And a lot of us have, you know, a lot of us who have devotional energy in this path, you know, where we feel like putting our hands together and putting our head down on the floor or just keep coming to Buddhist retreats even though they're difficult, right? And some of you fit that bill. We keep doing our practice, sitting in the morning again and again and again, studying because we feel inspired that this teaching that there is dukkha and that there's a way out, but the way out isn't our normal approach, right? Normally we deal with dukkha. This is the first thing the Buddha said, and if you don't know this, This is the Buddha's first Dharma talk, right? So he had his big awakening. He spent some time in that area where he had his powerful awakening, just letting it settle and deciding what to do. And after some reflection, decided he tracked down some old practice friends of his to share what he had come to understand. And then... uh, I won't go into the story, but finally they agreed to listen. They thought he had gone soft, but he looked so radiant and relaxed. They thought, well, maybe we'll listen to him. So they did. 
And then the first thing out of his mouth, before he even started talking about the Four Noble Truths, is he basically summarized what didn't work. Right? And he talked about indulging in sense experience doesn't work. There are these two extremes that are not to be indulged in by one who has gone forth. So just remember, he's talking to us. There are these two extremes that are, that are not to be indulged in by one who's interested in being free, one who's interested in real happiness. Which two? That which is devoted to sense pleasure with reference to central objects, right? So a life lived orienting around sense pleasure, wanting, indulging in sense pleasure, thinking that sense pleasure is going to lead to lasting happiness is not what one should indulge in if one wants to be really happy. So now we, it's very easy to misunderstand this, which is why we're going to be very grateful for what the Buddha says next. Because now he talks about what we would tend to do. Okay, forget the sense world. No more oatmeal in the morning. You know, you know I'm going to sleep outside under a tree or whatever we might think. You know, be afraid of the nice things that we have in life. And then he says, and that which is devoted to self-affliction. Both of these, indulging in sense pleasure and indulging in the rejection of pleasure. Like thinking that by rejecting sense pleasure, you're going to get to real happiness. Or thinking that by finding, getting sense pleasures, you're going to get real happiness means that you don't understand. Now, the thing is, we can keep, and we will, right? We're going to keep pursuing sense pleasures. I can pretty much guarantee that in you know, all of us, each in our own ways, we're going to pursue sense pleasures. So when you do it on retreat, you know, you're there and you've put one tablespoon of toasted walnuts on your oatmeal and you put a second and you're about to put a third, then just notice that view in the mind that somehow the crunchiness, the toastedness, the nuttiness of the walnuts we're thinking is going to make some lasting impression. But probably if we're you know, into the fourth or fifth spoon, we might even get a stomachache from it. But it won't. You, you can check it out though. See, d- does it really end up making a difference? Or when you're sleeping, not because your body or your mind needs rest, but because you don't want to feel what you're feeling, which is not uncommon (coughs) when we're on retreat. Uh, There's a really appropriate place for sleeping, of course. It's really good medicine, brings the mind into balance. But there's also sleep, same with eating. Eating is great medicine, takes care of the body, keeps the body humming along in a good way, the right kind of food, the right amount of food. But too much food or too much sleep or too much of pretty much anything, then we're trying to get something from the sense experience 
And then the important thing as a retreatant, as a practitioner, is to see, does it really deliver what I'm hoping that it delivers? Do the walnuts deliver? Does the sleep deliver? Does the avoiding sitting deliver the happiness I'm hoping to get, that I'm wanting, that I'm expecting? That way we learn, like even when we're indulging, and then when we become a scold and say, no breakfast for you and no dinner either. And if they ever serve desserts, no desserts. You know, so you just took the peanuts and none of those little chocolate M&M things. <laughs> you know, and I'm just going to use one thin blanket. Or, you know, whatever ways that we might, you know, like withholding our posture and, and I don't care if the knee hurts. So there's all kinds of ways that we can think that by punishing the body, by uh, not receiving sense pleasures that just show up and are being offered to us because we're afraid of them or we mistrust them or we think that the sense pleasure itself is the cause for happiness or the cause for unhappiness then that's also a kind of indulging in what is unprofitable, the Buddha says. Thinking that by holding back, refraining, is going to get us somewhere. What, we, what it does generally is it makes us proud and scornful of those of you who have nice things. <laughs> You're eating that, you know? You have that many cushions, you have that many shawls, you have... And we start to look down on people who have nice things. Don't they know that they're caught, that they're suffering? So the Buddha sets up this teaching by telling us it's not about indulging in sense pleasures. So check it out. When you indulge in sense experience, just in an honest way, see what of lasting value comes from that indulging. And when you get into the place of rejecting or being afraid of sense pleasures, getting identified with being the one who doesn't, and then just fill in the blank, who doesn't have, who doesn't do. I noticed this around, I was for a long time a really strict vegetarian. I'm still pretty much a vegetarian. Um, But I was for a couple decades really strict about it. And I noticed uh, I had some attachment to being a vegetarian. And uh, it was really liberating to let that go. I still, for me, it works really well. It seems to work with my body. I like the, uh, I like not being part of the sort of industrial agricultural industry any more than I need to be. But, I, but I'm not getting tight about it. I'm not going to get tight. I'm not going to create suffering. I'm not going to create an identity that is a cause for suffering for myself <coughs> and then modeling out for others. And then he talks about the middle way. Right? And the middle way, it's interesting, avoiding both of these extremes, 
the middle way realized by the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself, the one thus gone, producing vision, producing knowledge, leads to calm, to direct knowledge, to awakening, to unbinding, the unbinding of the heart. And in a way, this retreat, the center and the the retreat that we're all doing here, is really meant to support this middle way, where we have the comfort of the community, we have really good food, thoughtfully prepared, we have an attentive staff, we have two teachers that are doing the best they can to share what we've learned in our own practice and what we've come to understand from studying the Buddhist teachings. So we have these really nice conditions, but not too nice, right? Not too nice to sort of think that the place itself, the retreat itself, is the end, right? It's really a place to study the mind. And then we have this beautiful map that I'll go through now because it's not just study the mind, but there's a particular map that we can follow, a set of insights, what we refer to as the Four Noble Truths. But it's really, when you read the discourse, it's a set of 12 insights that the Buddha recommends we awaken to. And we can just start to play with these. Now, I mentioned the first three already. All the little times during the day when you're sitting and you're feeling a little restless or you're feeling some knee pain or you're a little cold or a little hot or you're walking, doing your walking practice, but there's a little slope and you find it a little irritating each time you walk up the hill or you get those, you have an open-toed pair of sandals or something and you get little stones in your sandal. And you never know whether you should stop and take it out or just live with it. And then you obsess about like, and then you realize that you really care about whether the person's going to see you stop in, you know. So then the first insight is, oh, there's dukkha, right? Just to realize, oh, this is the reality of unsatisfactoriness like caring about what people think. Oh, this is dukkha. Not liking the restlessness in the body. (coughs) Not liking the knee pain. Wanting people to think, wanting people around me to think that I can sit still. These are all different expressions of dukkha. Eating too much food can be dukkha. A painful memory can be dukkha. So it's not even so much the experience itself. It's the mental resistance. It's the fact that it's hard to bear. So think about today. How many little moments, maybe some big ones too, how many moments were there today when the moment, at least for a moment or two, felt hard to bear, was heavy, evoked some mental resistance. We got tight or bound up, thrown around a little. So what the Buddhist, the first insight is a clear, honest recognition. Oh, just like the Buddha said, there is dukkha. 
And when we see that, like in order for that to be an, insu- an insight, I was going to say insult, a little bit of a Freudian slip. In order for that to be an insight, then when, when the mind understands, oh, this is dukkha, then that means to some degree we get that it's not a mistake, that this is hard to bear, that this is difficult, that the mind doesn't like it. Right? Because that's how it is now. There is dukkha at times. Anybody disagree? Right. But how many times today did we clearly recognize, oh, this is dukkha? Like, not surprised, but sort of like things are aligning up. Oh, just like we were taught. There is dukkha. And then the next insight is, this is relevant. So it's not like, it's almost like the mind understands there's something to learn here. There's something not being seen about this experience of this being hard to bear, the mind not liking it. I don't, because the, the habit of the mind is this arrogant sense that I already know everything there is to know about knee pain. Right? I have no curiosity or this, the pain of a, me, uh, of a painful memory or any kind of frustration. Some, you found, finally found that, that great walking path and there somebody is who got there before you. And, you. and you just have that sense that this person has thought, I'm going to use this walking path every single time. And the worst thing is they sit a little closer to the door than you do. So they're going to get out. <laughs> they're a little faster than you will. And you don't want to rush because you don't want people to think you're a bad yogi. <laughs> See, this is dukkha. And then to realize, oh, there is dukkha and it's relevant. This is why I'm here. This isn't like in the way of me doing my practice. So even though today, especially, we encourage people to return the attention to the anchor, the rising and falling of the breath, then when this, these insights arise, just let them fully form in the mind. Oh, this is dukkha. This dukkha should be understood. That's the second insight. This dukkha should be understood. That doesn't mean it has been understood. It just means the mind realizes it's not about ignoring it. It's not about fixing it. It's about understanding what the mind hasn't understood about it. Which means this is why it's difficult. We have to be unafraid. We have to be patient. We actually have to be interested and what's hard to bear, what's difficult, what triggers not liking or mental resistance. It takes a lot of courage. So we start with little things, little frustrations, little irritations, little discomforts. Everyone is a teacher. Until we can do the third insight, until the third insight arises regularly, This dukkha has been understood. One line I like is from Reb Anderson. He's a a well-known Zen teacher, what used to be way back when, the abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, but now he's just a senior teacher. I think he lives at Tassajara, which is one of their um, places just north of San Francisco. And uh, 
He talks about being in the downtown of suffering. You've got to be in the downtown of suffering, not afraid of it, not negotiating with it. Now, we can't always do that, but even when we uh, purposefully, skillfully redirect the attention back to the anchor, back to hearing, back to more neutral or even pleasant object of awareness, because it doesn't seem there's enough stability, enough confidence to be aware of what's hard to be aware of, the dukkha. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, confuse ourselves or tell ourselves a lie that, well, I can't actually avoid that. I just, it's not appropriate to turn to that now, but someday, some moment, I will turn to that, I'll relax with that, until that third insight arises. This dukkha has been understood. Meaning, the awareness, the mind that knows, knows it's like this. It's just a simple, or not one moment necessarily, but just a series of moments of mindful awareness. An honest, a clear, a balanced, an undefended presence with whatever that is that's hard to bear. Whatever that experience of unsatisfactoriness is, or dukkha the stress, the ouch of it. Oh, it's like this. It's just this experience being known. Because the second three insights can't really show up until we've had the first three. There is dukkha. It should be understood. It's my teacher. It's why I'm here. It has been understood. And then the second three there is a cause for this dukkha. It's a conditional arising. There are causes and conditions. These supporting causes should be abandoned. The third one here is they have abandoned. So this is the second three insights. Now this is totally within our range of practice too. So when we have some stability with, and remember, Dukkha can be, you're, you're doing really well. Things are really still and uh, you really don't want that bell to go off because then everyone's going to move and it's going to ruin your stillness. That's also dukkha, not wanting something pleasant to end, not wanting anybody to take it away. Even eating your food, knowing, you know, like that delicious soup. I don't know about you, but I thought that soup was pretty nice tonight. And uh, seeing it disappear, you know, there's a real dukkha. Even before it's all gone, knowing that it won't be long, and then it's gone. So we recognize it. We recognize that it's relevant. We open to it just as it is. Oh, it's like this. Wanting more is like this. Wanting this to not end is like this. Wanting this to end or go away is like this. And then, because now, instead of thinking the cause for suffering is out there, with those first three insights, we understand it's right here, right here in the heart. So that means the causes are here, too. There is a cause. 
And that really, that first insight that the suffering that we experience in life has a cause, it really uh, arises from understanding the conditional nature. Like if it's here, then the causes are here. So what are the supporting causes? And it, with some study, it begins to come into view. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. If we contemplate desires and listen to them, we are actually no longer attaching to them. We are just allowing them to be the way they are. Then we come to the realization that the origin of suffering, desire, can be laid aside and let go of. How do you let go of things? This means you leave them as they are. It does not mean you annihilate them or throw them away. It is more like setting down and letting them be. Through the practice of letting go, we realize that there is an origin of suffering, which is the attachment to desire. And we realize that we should let go of these three kinds of desires. Then we realize that we have let go of these desires. There is no longer any attachment to them. There's a lot in this paragraph. So he's saying that because we've gotten intimate with dukkha, we're not afraid of it, there's enough stability in the awareness, enough continuity, and whatever was frustrating, whatever was hard to bear, we just keep recognizing it's just this experience being known. It's like this now. It's just this being known. We're not being aware in order to make it go away. We're being aware, the mind is aware because it's showing up, because it's like this now. And then we begin to see this, as Ajahn Sumedho says, this attachment to desire. So usually in these circles, we use the word craving as opposed to desire, because desire is pretty natural. There's no way to be a living being without desire. But it's when the mind personalizes or identifies with or attaches to desire, then we might use a different word like craving. So craving is when there's not just desire, but there's this psychic force, this attachment. I need that to happen. I want that to stop. This is not okay to me. Because we all, the system here, you know, it likes the temperature a little warmer, a little cooler. I'll notice whether the temperature is just right, too warm, too cool. But I don't need to construct a personal problem if it's too warm or too cool. Right? Because the wisdom can just notice that without this craving, needing, being dependent on being, it being different than the temperature. The other interesting thing in this paragraph that we can end with tonight, it will be really good to explore tonight and tomorrow during your practice, is 
So then we get to the first two insights, the second set of three insights. There is a cause. Whenever there's suffering, there's a cause, and it's here. It should be abandoned. And then the third insight, it has been abandoned. So this is a little uh, teaching on what we do when we notice attachment. It's the cause. Attachment is the problem. It should be abandoned. It has been abandoned. So it should be abandoned, as Ajahn Sumedho says, doesn't mean you got to throw it away. You have to get rid of it. So what is the actual cause of the abandoning of attachment, the abandoning of the cause for suffering? It's this insight, seeing that it should be abandoned. In uh, other places in the Buddhist text, the Buddha talks about it as this insight into what is skillful and what is unskillful, right? So this is not easy, but again, it's in the realm of how we can practice on this retreat where we might see some negativity arising in our mind. There's something that, like it's too cold in the room or too warm in the room, and this pattern of not liking it has arisen. There's identification, there's attachment, and that feels like a personal problem. And you go through the first set of insights. There is dukkha, somebody's suffering. It's relevant, it's my teacher. We open to it, we relax with it, we see it clearly. We're not no longer um, identified or we're not, no longer struggling with the dukkha. We're just letting it inform the mind. And we see the cause, right? Because in that simplicity, in that clarity, we see the, the arising of the somebody who doesn't like it. We see attachment as an activity in the mind. And when the mind sees the attachment, it knows there's a cause, and then it sees this cause should be abandoned. But that identification, that attachment, that's all we have to do is we just have to keep seeing that that's unskillful, that it's not functional. Taking the heat as a personal insult. Keep constructing a story that this is not fair, this is not okay, somebody has to open a window, or whatever might be going through our mind when we're frustrated or feeling some unpleasantness. We just keep seeing how dysfunctional, how that identification causes the stress, causes the squeeze of the heart, until the scene of it itself causes the letting go of the attachment. Because if we think we have to get in there and get rid of the attachment, well, I bet everybody knows this. It doesn't work. How many times have we seen that we're attached and try to get rid of it? It doesn't work. But what we can do is have enough stability of mind, enough clarity, enough continuity of mindful awareness to see the attachment as something that's not helping. And that this is this real coming together of wisdom and love, wisdom and compassion. That's what really allows the mind to be patient. I'm not going to act on the attachment because I know it doesn't help. I'm not going to act it out. 
that I can't make the attachment go away. So we're in this very poignant place in practice where there's still attachment, there's still stress from the attachment, but there's also some wisdom that understands this isn't helping. This is the cause for stress, not the cause for release. The mind dependent in this way, the mind caught in this way, is not helpful, is unskillful. This is not a judgment. This is called seeing things as they are. The mind is seeing the cause of suffering, the cause of stress in a very specific place, activity of the mind, until it's letting go. Letting go happens. That's a nice way to think. Letting go happens when the mind understands that attachment hurts. And we'll leave it here because partly because we're out of time. But this is all we need. The third insight or the third awakening to there is cessation of suffering. It should be realized. It has been realized. Of course, completely depends on these first six insights. And it will also be a natural arising, a natural maturing of seeing the release, the cessation of suffering, and having more clarity about why we got interested in this path anyway. That's the fourth noble truth. There is a path. It should be developed. It has been developed. All that second half really depends on this shift in our relationship to dukkha with enough stability so that we can see the cause, see that the cause should be abandoned, see those moments when attachment passes away. So this would be really nice tomorrow night before you go to bed to be able to remember a few times where you saw attachment, you saw it, you saw it, you saw it, continuity, you saw it, and then you saw that it wasn't there. So you saw the letting go. The mind really wanted this, really wanted this, really wanted this, really wanted this, and then it was gone. So you didn't have to gratify the desire. So like maybe you could just do an experiment where you see something you like to eat on the table and just as an experiment of truth, you don't take it. And you sit down where you can see it. So you see that there's some left even after everybody goes through the line. And you just watch the desire. You just watch it. You see it's stressful. The attachment to the desire is stressful. You just keep watching it. And just see, does it ever end? Do you have to get some of that for that tightness, the craving, the wanting to end? Or will it end even without gratification? That's really an interesting thing. Same thing if you're lying in bed tonight wanting to be home. Does that attachment to needing to be home cease even though you don't go home? Probably, because we've had a lot of attachments and they cease without being gratified or without you know, acting them out. So we'll have small groups tomorrow. So if you have some insights around dukkha and the cause of dukkha, this would be nice to share in the small groups tomorrow when we meet. So let's take a few seconds, let go of the words.
for listening. So we have about 25 minutes for walking practice now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.